Thank you, Tim. Thank you, praise team. Let me invite you, if you would, grab your Bibles and you can turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, so thankful for how God is continuing to lead us and guide us as we study uh, God's Word together there. So you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, we're going to pick up in verse 12 and make our way all the way down through the end of the chapter in verse 18. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, you're welcome to grab one out of the pew rack in front of you. And if you don't have one at home, you can take that one home with you. And that can be uh, our gift to you here this morning. And so thankful that uh, we have an opportunity to, to give that to you. So uh, as we think about 2 Corinthians and where we are, and really as we think about this text in particular, as we talk about beholding glory unveiled and the wonder of all of what that means, we like a good unveiling, don't we? Uh, you like to go to the maybe you like to go to the car show and you like to see the big unveiling of all the new models and everything else, or maybe you've been a part of other significant unveilings in the past, right? There have been some some pretty big ones here recently, even if you just back up uh, about 13 years, 2010, which it's hard to imagine. Back in 2010, that was when the first iPad came out, right? That seems like a million years ago, doesn't it? But when the, when the iPad first came out and they unveiled that to everyone, they were selling for the first weekend that that was coming out, 300,000 of those things a day at 600 bucks a pop. You wait a few years longer, right? You, you make it a, a, just about five years later, the iPhone 4S, when that came out and was first unveiled and people are looking at all the new technology that's loaded into that, and you think about that, you're like, that thing's old school, right? You've probably got three of those in a drawer somewhere. When the first unveiling of that took place, they were selling 1.3 million of those a day for the first weekend that it came out. We like a good unveiling. We like to see what is new and what sparkles and shines and what captures the eye and everything else. And I wonder if we have that sort of expectation, that sort of joy, and that sort of delight as we think about the greater glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we would be amazed with that sense, that sense of eagerness in our hearts as we think of the glory of Jesus. So grab your copy of God's Word and read with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. And like I said, we'll read down through the end of the chapter in verse 18. Read with me if you will. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 12 says this, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to see the great glory unveiled right before us. Father, we have spent our days and spent our weeks and in some circumstances spent our lives beholding things that in, in an ultimate sense really don't matter. Open our eyes to see the wonder of Christ, the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of our Savior. And Father, that in this moment now, Lord, that you would be 
worshipped with adoration. That you would be acknowledged in the hearts and lives of some people for the first time as Savior and Lord. Father, that you would be rejoiced in over and over again by those who have known you for years. Father, in all things and in every way, stir our hearts to behold you again in all of the magnificent glory that you have revealed in Christ. Lord, help us. Give us eyes to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. By the time we get to this section of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we've talked a lot about who God is and how He is and what He's done. We've talked about the, the God of all comfort, and we've talked about the God who raises the dead, and we've talked about the God who pours out His grace, or the God who is faithful to His promises, or the triumphant God who spreads the aroma of His triumph everywhere. As we think of God who is sufficient and God who is all-glorious and stirring in our hearts these great expectations, and we pick right up where we left off last week where he says, since we have such a hope, a hope of the greater glory of the gospel, a hope with a great sense of expectation in what God is going to do. Because again, biblically, when we use the word hope, we're not talking about potential. We're talking about confidence and expectation. That the gospel is sufficient and the gospel is mighty and the gospel transforms lives because the Spirit is at work in our midst. And so we can face now and we can face eternity with absolute hope. But we have to see that having such a hope has very practical effects in our lives. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Courageous to speak is another way you could translate that Greek word that's used there. Bold with our mouths, bold with our declarations, very direct in speech, but not wishy-washy. The law condemns, Christ saves, trust in Christ. That as we think of a practical application of hope in Christ, hope makes us bold. You know, when we talk about boldness, a lot of times when we, you know, for us naturally, it just doesn't come. We talk about doing, you know, gather and go and be like, well, I just can't do that. I'm not a very bold person. No, no, no. What? You don't need a personality transplant. Hope makes us bold. Knowing Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, that makes us bold. Knowing that no matter what happens in life, we have Him, that makes us bold. We don't need to emulate or, or someone else. We need Him and rest in the guarantee of everlasting life in Christ. Because if we have that, what is it that we're afraid of? When we have hope in Christ and the assurance that the glorious God that we have talked so much about already, that He's with us, what is it that we're afraid of? As we think of the glory of the one who has come to save us, is social pressure stronger than our hope? I sure hope not. Face a bold world with bold claims, with a bold witness of bold hope in our great God and Savior. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, but notice he says something very striking here. Not like Moses. And at first we read that, we're like, wait, what? Not like Moses. I mean, you go back and you read Exodus, and you're like, Moses was bold, right? I mean, he didn't start off bold, but when, he, when God completely 
revolutionized his life. And you can go back and read Exodus chapter 4, right, as he's having this interaction with God, like, send somebody else, I can't speak. And God says, who made man's mouth? And then next thing you know, he's standing up in front of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And then you're seeing all these plagues take place. And then you, you see him at the Red Sea. And you see all the wonders of Sinai and all those things taking place. But he says, not like Moses. We have to be careful how we think about this because the Apostle Paul is not questioning Moses here. Moses did as he was commanded. But Moses could not open hearts and open minds. We are very bold because we have such a hope. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. And at this point, as you go back and you could read Exodus chapter 34, and you're trying to think through all those things, and you know, Moses and his, uh, his face reflecting the glory of God, and you think, well, why the veil? And in a very ultimate sense, the people could not bear the glory of God and survive. As we think about that, and you can see that all over the place, even within the Old Testament itself, the law reveals our need and our lack. It shows us our sin and our own unholiness before a righteous and and a holy God, and so unmediated glory would be our complete undoing. And so in veiling in this way, God is displaying both His mercy and His judgment. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome, at the end of what was being brought to an end. Outcome in the sense of the purpose, that it was being brought to an end, that the law itself was not the final declaration. It's not just, here's the law, do these things, have a good day. No, the law shows us our sin and is meant to bring us to our knees before God and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. This is not works-based righteousness. But neither is it in an end in such a way that we completely discard the whole thing. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. Whereas Paul said in another place in Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10 verse 4, for Christ is the end, the purpose of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They were missing the point. It's just like what the Apostle Paul unpacks in talking about Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And then you go and you live in the, in the law. See, don't miss the point of all of this. Be bold with hope. It's been fully revealed. There's nothing veiled. There's nothing obscured in the gospel. See, it reminds me of one of those things when when I was in elementary school. Maybe you remember some of these things. They were called austereograms. It's one of those two-dimensional images where it it just looks like nothing. It's a poster that's hung up on the side. And yet, if you looked at the three dots in the middle, you all know what I'm talking about here? And if you looked at the three dots in the middle, an image would sort of come out of the middle of it, a three-dimensional image if you looked at it the right way. And I can remember standing in the classroom with all the kids in elementary school, and they're looking at those, the, those things and being like, oh, yeah, I see it. The boat's coming right at my face. And I'd get over there, and I'm like, I got nothing. 
Like, y'all are nuts. There's nothing in there. It's just a big old mess. And they go back over there. like, no, you see it? You just got to look, look, look at it this way. We go back over there. Nothing. It was as though I had a veil over my face. I was missing the point. I don't see it. Sometimes people would fake it. Oh, yeah, I see it. Walk out the door and I don't have a clue in the world what they're talking about. See, that's how many are still, isn't it, as it relates to Christ. Some are looking and some see and are amazed and are delighted in knowing Christ and the joy of the gospel and the wonder of who he is. And some are looking and just faking it. Saying, oh yeah, I see it, sure, and go out the door and I don't have a clue in the world what they're talking about. May God open our eyes to see, may he remove the veil as he alone can, that we would behold Christ, the only remedy for hard minds and veiled hearts. He says in verse 14, behold, their minds were hardened. For to this day when they they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Minds in the sense of their own thoughts and perceptions and interpreting what God has revealed, they were just wound down in ignorance and unbelief. Minds were a mess, hardened, dull, insensible, you might say. It's the same face some of us made while we were sitting in physics class. And for those of you that didn't make that face in physics class, you're probably making that that face whenever they were diagramming sentences in language arts. That like, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Maybe get the same response that you would out of Stone Mountain itself. Maybe just get somebody to nod along a little but completely miss the idea. Maybe even pretend along like the trainee at work and you're trying to show them what to do and they're like, oh yeah, sure, I'll do that. And you know good and well they're not even paying attention. Minds were hardened. This feels familiar, doesn't it? Hardened minds just don't get it. Because we can talk about the law and we can talk about our own sin and we can talk about how, you know, our own covetousness is a display of our own sinfulness. We can talk about idolatry, we can talk about lust, we can talk about all these things that just peel back the layers of our own self-righteousness and expose us before a righteous and a holy God and show us our need and that only Christ is our hope and only He can save us from the wrath that we deserve. And there's some in here even, and you have heard the gospel over and over and over and over and over again. And it's like water being dripped right off the side of a rock. Doesn't soak in. No response. Don't care. Could talk about the curse of the law and standing condemned and in your need of grace. And it's just about the same response that you get out of gravel in the parking lot. Hardened. He says their minds were hardened. To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, when they read the, the public reading of the law, as they're giving the, the sin, uh, in the synagogue and 
proclaiming scripture. And you can even think about Jesus when he walked into the synagogue one day and you know, he reads from Isaiah 61. And he says, in your hearing, these words have found their fulfillment. And they're like, what are you talking about? See, it's not an issue of reading comprehension that's the, that's the hardship here. It's not, it's not that you just need hooked, hooked on phonics in the first century, and it's not that you just need hooked on phonics right now. This is not about putting the words together in coherent sentences. This is a moral mind and heart problem that only Christ can fix. Because as we read this and we think hard hearts and hard minds, is that still an issue? It's everywhere, isn't it? And when you first read this, you're like, man, this feels kind of discouraging. And then you look around and you start to make application of it. You think of antagonism in society and distrust and all the blindness and professing believers who seem to have no idea. And the question always comes back to, who are we beholding? Who are we looking to? Because if we keep looking to ourselves to be the solution and make our own solution, we're not going to get there. Only through Christ is it taken away. We need to see that He is the only remedy. Christ Jesus, fully God and fully man, who came in the flesh, who lived in perfect righteousness, who was tempted to sin in every way as we are, and yet never did, who went to the cross and died for our sin, who endured the full outpouring of the wrath of God against the sin of all who would repent and believe, laid down his life, was buried, and three days later rose from the dead. Only through Christ is this veil taken away. We're not offering any other remedy. We're a, we're a single source provider. We only give out one thing. It's Jesus. He is the only remedy. See, the reality is we have a a remedy problem because we keep falling into this idea of offering these other remedies that are not Christ. You can get into all the details and you could track for a long time back talking about evangelical fads. And you don't even have to go back through the 20th century. You can just keep jumping back in history over and over and over and over again. A new idea, a new thing. Let's try this out. You can know about, you know, whether it's bracelets to wear on your hand and not ever talk about how Christ transforms your heart. You talk about doing all of these events and never talk about how Christ needs to deal with the heart. You can deal with all the philosophical issues of critical race theory and intersectionality, or you can talk about all the ways in which we put so much stock in politics as a solution for everything. You can talk about stylistic issues, whether it's old style or new style, whether we're offering nostalgia or innovation, or maybe we're going to offer money, or maybe we're going to offer comfort, or maybe we're going to offer ease. No, we offer Jesus. He's the remedy. The only hope for opening the eyes of the blind in our own society and in our own families that we sit across the table from on a daily basis is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Shame on us for being so bold with useless remedies instead of bold with the truth of Christ. Christ is the only remedy. He took it upon Himself. He took the initiative, his life, his death, his resurrection. So we're bold with hope. And the power of the Spirit and the power of the gospel to transform lives. 
And so as we go and we sow the seed of the gospel and we share Christ with people and you're at work and you're sharing Christ with people and you're at home and you're sharing Christ with your kids and your grandkids, don't grow weary in well-doing because you'll reap a harvest if you do not give up. The remedy is Christ keep offering. Lift high the only remedy. He says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. As they would read Moses, as they would read the first five books of the Bible, as they would read Genesis 3.15 and talk about the one who's going to come and crush the serpent's head, or they would talk about Melchizedek and the, the one who's the great high priest and the king, or they would look at the sacrifice of Isaac and the rescue and the lamb that's being provided. You would think about the life of Jacob and all of what is displayed there. You would think about Exodus and you would think about Passover and redemption and God's guidance and God's law even, or you would think about Leviticus and the atonement that is necessary and the sacrifices that are needed and the hope that's provided. You would think about numbers and all the wandering in the wilderness and how he's our God and how he blesses us and how gracious he is, or Deuteronomy and all the glory revealed again and how we're accountable and how we can look back and we can see that curse is the one who was put upon that tree and in him he bore our curse, became our curse so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. What a Jesus we have. And yet they would read that and miss it all. A veil over their hearts. Shrouded. Obscured. That in the heart, we're talking about the affections and even down into how the affections shape the will. You will never make sense of the Old Testament without Christ. We all know the value of seeing clearly. Whether it's your glasses that maybe you wear and you get them all smudged up or maybe one of your kids gets a hold of them, you put them on, you're like, Maybe it's your windshield that for whatever reason you haven't cleaned off in forever. Maybe it's your phone when you finally peel it away from one of your kids and they were eating and smearing mac and cheese all over it. Yeah, it has that weird draggy feel to it. You're like, what is this? This is disgusting. We need clarity. Christ gives clarity. He who is the light of the world is the one who unveils his own glory. What a remedy he is. That we can be bold with hope in a world that is so broken and in need of life. That we can look at our children as parents and we can look at our parents as children and say there is hope in Christ. We can look at those who are sick and those who are well, those who are old or those who are young, those who are confused and mixed up about all manner of things and say, look, listen, the remedy is Christ and by the Spirit of God and work through the Word of God displaying the glory of Christ, the Son of God, they will come to faith in Jesus to the glory of God the Father. Behold Him, point to Him, trust Him, display Him, Declare him and look forward to the veil removal. Because he says in verse 16, he says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
This is not just an intellectual shift where you're just sort of making sense out of the words. This is turning to the Lord, repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus who died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead. That the Spirit brings about conviction and repentance. And you behold and believe and enjoy and the veil is removed. The distortions are gone. What was so obscure is now so clear. Some in here need Christ to do this. Need the Spirit to do this. And when you see, and for those in here who have experienced this, it's amazing, isn't it? You lived for so long in the darkness, and then all of a sudden somebody turned the lights on, and you're like, oh, there you go. This is amazing. And the more you look around, the better he gets. The more amazing he is. The more the light shines and shows the need and the help. And that all of a sudden we are reminded all of our testimonies should sound a whole lot like the man who was born blind in John chapter 9. All I know is I once was blind, but now I see. See his providence and see his glory and see his patience at work in our own lives. That we need the light of the world to turn the lights on, to remove the veil, to take down, take down the blackout curtains and remove the sleep mask and raise us up out of the, our deadness and our trespasses and sin and to be alive in Christ. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You experience freedom. The Lord... Is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Hallelujah. Now we, we can go all into talking about how we, you can so clearly see, you even using synonyms of talking about Jesus and the Christ and the one who is the Spirit, and you're talking about God the Father, and you look at the broader context, you see in so many ways the ways in which this affirms the Trinity. But it's even interesting to ask the question, well, why mention this here? The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Why bring this up? Well, we need to know how Jesus keeps his promise to his disciples. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. The omnipresence of the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Father at work in our hearts and lives. And that he is completely unimpeded. There is nothing that will stop him. But he doesn't have an address. He's with his people. God's not somehow locked up in this building as though, you know, we sort of come around and hang out with him for a little while and then leave and he's still here. No, he's everywhere. And when he's in your life, when he is Lord in, over, your, over your life by faith in him and you trust him as Lord, where he is, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Free from sin, alive in Christ. The blindness is removed. The foolish pursuits are gone. And that when you were once treasuring trash in the darkness, you are now treasuring the treasure in the light. This is not righteousness by the law. This is life in Christ. But without Him, we are still in bondage. With Him, we are set free. The shackles of sin are gone. Unshackled from our past and defined by His grace. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Set free to live. Not using the grace of God as reason to sin. Not making a name for ourselves, but set free to enjoy Jesus. Set free from the sin that was even inflicted upon you because in Christ we are adopted into the kingdom and we have a new heavenly father. Even though your father may have been a terrible human being, the heavenly father is absolutely perfect whose love abides forever. Free from the loneliness and isolation. Set free never to be enslaved to sin again. The Spirit gives life, sets us free. Is this your experience? When we talk about the Spirit of the Lord, can you say where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom? Is that the testimony of your life? Is that what's on display? Have you experienced this kind of transformation? Because he goes on to say in verse 18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We all, speaking of all believers, all who know Christ as Savior and Lord, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror. And yeah, you can go back and you can go back and trace all the history of ancient mirrors and everything else. And, you know, back then, at least at this point in history, I mean, you're talking about polishing metal, and it wouldn't be exactly like the mirrors that we have now. But even still, it would be a clearer image than what they had anywhere else. And the fact of the matter is, when you use a mirror, mirrors address the details, right? The mirror is where when you got up this morning, you looked in the mirror and you were like, I mean, I didn't, but maybe you did it. You got a cow lick back there. Mirrors where you go when somebody's like, oh, you got something in your teeth. You finally got that good friend who will finally tell you, right? And you're like, oh, okay, good, thanks. You go over there and try to deal with that. Mirrors where you look and you see the details of the fact that maybe you need to keep your New Year's resolution next year. But as we think about what we're looking at here, we're not beholding ourselves. We're looking at Jesus. We're beholding the glory of the Lord, the light of his glory down into the details of our lives. And that we would become like him. And that ultimately we do become like who we behold, don't we? Those who we adore, we inevitably become a whole lot like. And maybe you, I mean, we can trace this any which way. You can talk about, you know, celebrities or influencers and all these sort of, you know, people along the way. We are beholding the glory of the Lord as believers, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He who is our salvation, he who is our Savior, he who is our Lord, he whose glories know no bound, that we will sing for all eternity the glories of the one who saved us, who lived and died and rose again. We're beholding him and all the hope and joy and might that he brings, beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Same image. Who are we talking about? How do we know he's talking about Jesus? You can just look down in chapter 4, verse 4, where he says this. In speaking of Jesus, 
the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We're not settling for less here. We're not looking to somebody else saying, I'm going to build my life off of them. No, build your life off of Jesus. Look to him. Trust in him. Follow him. In all things and in every way, he who is the best. Become more Christ-like. Coming up in the early 90s and playing basketball, I remember the ad campaign that came out. Once I sing the song, I know you're going to recognize it. It's a Gatorade commercial. I think it came out in 1992. Like Mike. If I could be like Mike. And you got, you know, every once in a while you see a picture of Michael Jordan, you see him, you know, run by and do something amazing. And then the next thing you know, it's like showing all the amateurs going out there with the tongue hanging out, drinking Gatorade, thinking they're flying through the air and they're dunking on like a five and a half foot goal. Like Mike. If I could be like Mike. Now, nobody was singing the song, If I Could Be Like Bill Lambeer. I hope not. Nobody was singing the song about anybody else. Why? Who was the best? For that matter, who is the best? Build your life off of the best. That's who we want to be like. But see, as we're beholding Jesus and we see the magnificence of his glory and the fact that he would save us by his grace and then take such intimate care to be so involved in our lives and we behold him and we trust him and he transforms us ever increasingly into his image, shaping our lives, conforming our lives into him in progressive sanctification as we grow in our holiness and he shapes us and the light of his glory shines and shows where where our lives do not fit the standard and yet still he is our savior, but he's our savior who's our shepherd who is also at work in our own hearts and lives to correct us and lead us and guide us and so we fix our eyes on Jesus and have the same mind in us that was that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so we embrace humility like Jesus. We embrace Jesus' way in which he was with people and he loves those who are his neighbor and all of his grace and forgiveness and re- restoration in the life of, the, uh, of Peter. You can think of the truth and conviction with which he speaks into society and all the ways he relates to society in the Gospels. Transformed. From one degree of glory to another. Then as glory is unveiled, it's not just the unveiling and then we all go home and that's it. No, we're for all of our lives shaped ever increasingly for the glory of Jesus. Is this your experience? He says this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The redemptive, restoring, ongoing work of the Lord in our lives. He is the source. And he is not hindered by your history. He is not hindered by whatever it is that you brought in here today. This comes from the Lord. Who is the Spirit? Are we beholding this glory unveiled? Or are we looking at ourselves and thinking, I can take care of this? Are we beholding the glory of the one 
who went to the cross and died there for our sin, who endured the full outpouring of the wrath of God against the sin of all who would repent and believe, that we would have forgiveness and everlasting life in his name, that no matter what the backstory may be, no matter what, what the sort of circumstances that led us to the moment where we finally turn away from our sin and trust in Christ, that when we look to Jesus, we can know and we can hear him say, it is finished and it is complete and it is done. Christ has died, Christ has risen. Praise be to God, there's life in his name. Behold Jesus, the only remedy, and trust in him today. Trust in who he is and what he has done, and live free and transformed. May our response to his word today give evidence of the fact that we believe him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us and leading us and guiding us and growing us. Thank you for taking such a concern and such a care that not only would you save us, but you would transform us. So, Lord, since we have such a hope, may we be very bold. Let us be bold in our prayers before you. Let us be bold in the way in which we throw our lives into the study of your word. Let us be bold in the way in which we worship you together in spirit and truth. Let us be bold in the ways in which we seek to advance your kingdom. Let us be bold as we walk out of this place, ever eager to offer the only remedy for sin. Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Father, we pray even more than that right now, We pray for those who are in our midst who have heard the word over and over and over and over and over and over again. And God, we are asking that by your spirit and for your glory, there would be an unveiling today. That the light of the gospel would pierce the darkness of a heart who would turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, who would simply cry out, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I believe Jesus died and rose for me. May the unveiling take place today that we we all may further rejoice in you. And may we all look to you together to shape our lives to be ever increasingly more like Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.